Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another edition of Beyond the Album Cover with yours truly, Jarrell Mason, where we get inside the entertainment industry with those in the know and give them their flowers while they're here to be celebrated. I couldn't think of no better way than to celebrate National Radio Day than sitting here with the guy that's responsible for breaking numerous acts. He has done numerous stops all across the country. And right now he is helping you. Yes, you out there in virtual land, have your brand go from zero to 100 real quick. The one, the only, Mr. Airroy Smith. Mr. Smith, welcome to Beyond the Album Cover, sir. Hey, Jarrell, so good to meet you. Uh, my first time uh, connecting with you and I heard from uh, a dear friend of mine, Rick Party, who is an icon in the broadcasting business, and he had only great things to say about you. So I'm here uh, to um, connect with you, and thank you for even putting me on your roster. So thank you. <laughs> Appreciate that. Yes, sir. And thank you once again to Rick Party for uh, linking us up and making this interview happen. So let's go ahead and jump right into it. Where were you born and what got you inspired to join this crazy profession that we know and love known as radio? Well, Jarrell, I was born uh, on an island. Uh, it's about 66,000 people uh, that live on this island. The island is Bermuda, which is in the Atlantic Ocean. Uh, it's uh, just uh, off uh, the Carolinas. And um, what, for 17 years, I lived uh, in Bermuda. And uh, I fell in love with music uh, at around 15, uh, 16 years old, ended up um, uh, joining a singing group, Jarrell, uh, in Bermuda. And I thought that I was doing really well in the group. And right after this big performance, about 5,000 people were there. The group pulled me aside and said, um, you know, Elroy, we don't think you're a fit for uh, the singing group and fired me. Jarrell, right after the performance. So I went home <laughs> feeling uh, depressed, a little down and out. And, and then something just hit me. I said, you know, I still want to do something pertaining to entertainment. And I reached out to uh, the radio station in Bermuda and said, boy, I would love to be a disc jockey. And uh, they said, well, come on down. And uh, they gave me some copy to read. Uh, Jarrell, and I fumbled over the copy and uh, just could not even get through reading a 30-second commercial. Um, and I was pretty embarrassed. And they said to me, you know, you may want to go to school. Uh, unfortunately, I did not do well in school in Bermuda. I went to uh, two different high schools. Uh, the first high school um, expelled me. And the second high school, I just couldn't do it. And I ended up dropping out of school. Um, and I tell everybody, don't follow my footsteps uh, on that. Because looking back, I do regret it. But anyway, I wanted to pursue college. And I knew that, you know, when you're applying for college, what you need uh, a high school diploma, you need some transcripts, blah, 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 blah. So I reached out to the college that I wanted to um, be a part of, and they said, Mr. Smith, we could get you into this college, and I'll name the college in a minute. Um, we are closing down in a year and a half. This is a two-year um, institution, and if you could complete a two-year program in a year and a half, you're in. However, 
we need you to get uh, a letter from a politician in Bermuda and a minister. So I was able to get uh, two letters of references and they said, look, we got these great letters and we will accept you. So I was accepted into a school in Boston called Graham Junior College. And um, I felt so behind um, Jarrell. I just uh, felt like I was the most backward student in, in college because I did so poorly in high school. So I would go home feeling ashamed I would pull out every encyclopedia that I possibly could find just to get caught up in terms of American history, just to sharpen my um, mental capacity. And um, the school came to me close to a year and a half and said, look, one more semester, we're shutting down. And I knew that I had two more semesters, Jarrell, to cover. So I was, uh, not I was, I had to do nine courses in my last semester in order to graduate with um, an associate's degree in broadcast journalism. So I was able to do that and um, boy, whew, it was a struggle, but I was able to um, get that degree. And then I went back to Bermuda and they said, hey, uh, let's give this guy an opportunity to uh, be on the radio. So I was on the air and uh, they said, look, we can give you a summer job and and I sort of hung out on the air and doing my thing. And I said, I'm still not happy. I want to go back uh, to Boston and uh, pursue more education. So I went back to Boston and um, went to Emerson College, which is a four-year school, but I only had to do two more years. So I transferred over to Emerson College, um, got my bachelor's um, and mass communications. Uh, so that was a great thing. But while at Emerson, they have a radio station called WERS and they have a nighttime program that was designed for R&B listeners. So it was on at 10 o'clock until two in the morning. So I was on there sort of doing my thing, being a DJ. And then I was able to uh, get an internship during my last year at Emerson College. And the internship was at WILD in Boston. It was an AM station, sunrise to sunset. So the joke in Boston was, if it's daylight, this radio station uh, is on the air. But at night, it was not on the air. So I did an internship. And here's how it all went down. Um, they had a Caribbean show on the air, and they took it off. And listeners were uh, very, very upset. They wanted the show, uh, Jarrell, to come back on. And uh, the program director, a gentleman named Steve Crumley, who is uh, in the Carolinas, he was the program director at WILD, and he said, Elroy, um, isn't Bermuda uh, in the Caribbean? And Bermuda is not in the Caribbean. I just didn't want to get into a long conversation with him. So he said, look, uh, since you're from the islands, I want you to go on the air every Sunday and do this Caribbean show from like two until five. I didn't know anything about reggae music, didn't know anything about Calypso music, but I had to learn it quickly. So I was able to do that show and uh, here we are, uh, 1981, I'm graduating and I'm like, okay, it's time to go back home to Bermuda with my bachelor's in mass communications. However, that didn't happen, Jarrell. Uh, they offered me a full-time job um, when I graduated. And uh, so I want to give props to WILD in Boston. And um, that's how it really started uh, in America at that radio station, WILD.
Right, in the bean town of Boston. So what was the culture mm -hmm. shock for you besides the weather coming from Bermuda to Boston and having to deal with the Nor'easters? Well, you know, uh, Jarrell, uh, I experienced the blizzard of 1978. And it was like, could I even function in this? And Bermuda, of course, the weather's nice and beautiful to go through, um, you know, oh my goodness, an, uh, an avalanche of uh, snow. That was a culture shock for me. But I tell you what, I really didn't even pay that too much attention. Why? I was so into uh, the books, trying to get caught up, trying to learn as much as I can, studying radio, uh, so obsessed with radio that, uh, you know, I, I'm like, I just got to get through uh, the storm. I got to get through <laughs> all of the snow and just do my thing. So that was one thing that was a culture shock to me. The other culture shock was Boston in terms of the African-American population. It's very, very, very small. Um, it was, uh, when I was there in Boston, it was about 6% African-Americans. So that's why there was no 24-hour uh, FM urban station there because operators thought that, boy, uh, that small percentage of African-Americans, Boston, would not be able to uh, support uh, an FM 24-hour radio station. Wow. Yeah, it's almost kind of like how Jimmy Jam and Terry Lewis was explaining growing up in Minnesota. You had to yes. go to your certain yeah. AMs to get your R&B, your funk fix, because right. other than that, it was top 40 AOR or whatever format of the day. Yes, correct, correct, correct. All right, so 81 hits. Did you have an inkling of a five-man kid group out of Boston that was the new edition of the Jackson 5 new edition Ronnie Ricky Mike Ralph and Bobby and as we saw in the new edition story they had already been making a name for themselves in the talent show circuit in and around Boston with the Hollywood Talent Night which was put on mm -hmm. by Mr. Maurice Starr you can check that mm -hmm. interview wherever you stream people it's a great one so tell me about your relationship seeing new additions rise to national prominence and Maurice Starr what he was able to do with new edition and then later new kids on the block you know, Jarrell, uh, I remember to this very day as I'm speaking with you, it was in 1983, um, Maury Starr comes to visit the radio station. Now, picture this. The radio station is in the Black community, an area called Roxbury, uh, Massachusetts. So it was a community station located in the community. So Maury Starr I don't even know. I don't think he even made an appointment. I just think he walked into the radio station with, I believe, Ricky uh, and presented me with um, Candy Girl. Now, if he didn't make an appointment, that was because that's how we created that radio station, a community. People can just walk in uh, the booth. As soon as you walked into the lobby, you saw the DJ booth, which was so cool. So listeners would just come by they were so proud to have their homegrown radio station located in their community. But back to the Maury Starr story, he brings Ricky Bell by and he gives me uh, this 45. And I still see it today, uh, Jarrell. Um, Streetwise Records uh, was a white, uh, you know, record and uh, meaning in the middle. 
and it said Candy Girl. He said, Elroy, this is going to be a hit. At that particular time, I was still sort of getting acclimated into being a program director because that very same year, I became the program director of WILD. And I, I didn't know what all of this meant. Uh, like, okay, Maurice, I'll put it on. And I think I put Ricky Bell on the air and sort of said, hey, tell me about this song. I put it on and the phones lit up. Then I played it again and they lit up like crazy. I'm like, there's something about this song. Then I put it on again. And so that's three times in a row. Not knowing that, what, 20, 30 years down the road, this group, New Edition, would still be relevant. And then after that, the song just blew up. And how it blew up, I knew that this thing was gigantic, uh, Jarrell, when I heard it on the top 40 station in Boston, Kiss 108. When Kiss 108 played it, I'm like, this is real. And then after that, it just, um, you know, uh, expanded in terms of um, publicity, expanded, expanded, expanded. And it became, of course, um, you know, just a monumental song that people will remember for life. Mm -hmm. And then with New Kids, there's actually a video on YouTube of New Kids performing at, I believe, a now defunct Boston nightclub called Nines Landau, I believe. This was before they blew up nationally. They were all wearing matching Jordan tracksuits, performing Right mm -hmm. Stuff, Please Don't Go Girl, mm -hmm. and Hanging Tough. And I had a chance to interview mm -hmm. Danny from New Kids, and mm -hmm. it was telling me how the Dorchester Kite Festival was one of the festivals where they really cut their teeth honed their craft and a lot of people don't know new kids were marketed towards the r&b market and they did a version of please don't go girl the video that was only seen on bet and maurice paid for that out of pocket and i believe it was shot at larry Wu's house who put together the boston-based group finest hour and then of course we all know what happens next when new kids took off well, uh, I remember it was um, the name of the club you're referring to is Nine Lansdowne Street. Uh, that's a club. But uh, with regard to the festival, this was the annual Boston Kite Festival. Oh, excuse me. And I remember, no, it's, it's all good. First of all, I could tell that you've done so much research. So thank you. Um, I remember that day as you sat here and you're sort of reminiscing, I'm reminiscing with you. Uh, I still see them on stage at uh, the Kite Festival. Why? They made a connection with uh, WILD as well. Um, so we put them on, um, on the show. And we even played New Kids on the Block on uh, WILD in Boston. Uh, we, we, we said, you know what? We're playing them on the radio station. Let's go ahead and give them an opportunity to perform in front of thousands and thousands of people. And I've admired all of those guys um, ever since then and to this very day, I'm just uh, enamored by, um, you know, Donnie's success and all of the other members. Yeah, and they just recently did a show at uh, Fenway and they broke out the Nine yeah. Nook sweatshirts. That was their original yeah. name before they became New Kids and they cut right. their teeth performing at the Lee School. So when they became right. a pop phenomenon, it was easy because they cut their yeah. teeth in the hardcore urban community where we'll let you know quick whether you're trash or not. <laughs> 
Yeah. And you know what? I must commend them many, many years later for taking on that uh, challenge because it was not one white person in the audience. It was predominantly black. Uh, this kite festival is sort of designed for the community and the community in Boston pretty much are connected in terms of African-American communities. You got Roxbury, you have Dorchester, and you uh, have Mattapan. And uh, so for them to come on out, uh, Jarrell, and perform to you know, a predominantly African-American audience, you know, that was great boldness uh, on their behalf. So I, I commend them to this very day for doing that. Right. So for you being in the radio industry, when this little thing called rap was starting to bubble and it's starting to get play outside of the mix show hours or overnights, where it's not going to affect the Arbitron books or now PPM, if you're still in radio, how would you say most upper management would kind of say, OK, we got to play rap? because it's what the kids want, but also maintain that sweet R&B bass where we play Luther, Anita, Freddie Jackson, Sade, Phyllis Hyman, so on and so forth. Yeah, you know, um, I had to assure management that I would be um, very, very particular with regard to what rap we play, and we would edit out any language that could be questionable uh, and I think I was able to achieve that, you know, in Boston with uh, the owner. Um, you know, of course, you had your rapper's delight, you had the message, you had your LL Cool J's and, you know, and the list goes on and on and on. Uh, Eric B and Rakim, um, Craig Mack. I'm like, we, we got to uh, incorporate uh, these great songs into the R&B mix. And believe it or not, uh, as we play these songs today, if we want to reminisce, they just sound like regular uh, R&B songs. But back in the day, uh, they stood out <laughs> when they uh, came on the radio. So we were particular with regard to um, what rap songs we did play uh, back in the day. Right. And I remember the liners for certain stations and no rap or radio edit without <laughs> rap. Right. No, you're right. <laughs> you would hear the the edit sounding very choppy. And, um, you know, rap was considered what um, a negative. And yeah, those stations that would proudly say uh, no rap. Um, I'm sure they're looking back now saying, boy, uh, that phenomenon is still um, of importance today. Uh, I, I'm sure many thought, well, it's going to be like the disco era. Uh, Durrell here today and, and gone tomorrow, but no, this, this genre um, will be here uh, for eternity. And what was the transition like for you going from the side of on-air personality up to managerial and how to kind of play both sides where, okay, I got to be a certain way with management, be a certain way with the personalities and find that sweet spot to where you can understand the personalities where, hey, I was once one of you all, but when your management understand that it's all about that PL sheet and about those quarterly earnings. Yeah, um, I after I left uh, WILD in Boston, I went to a station called 100.3 Jams uh, in Dallas. So I went from a little AM station that was only on the air drill during the day and to a station that was 100,000 watts FM um, 24 hours. 
And when I went to Dallas and I said, you know what, let me continue doing what I was doing in Boston. I'll be on the air and also be the program director. Within days, I realized that I am not good on the air. I had to look myself in the mirror and admit uh, a weakness of mine. Um, so at that point, I said, we need a strong morning man. And that's when I went to Los Angeles, sat in a hotel room and turned on 1580 K-Day and listened to a guy named Russ Parr. And I'm like, I like this guy. I really, really do. Um, so I wanted to hear him live just so, you know, uh, there's no editing involved or him picking out the best parts to send to me. I heard him live and we offered Russ Parr a job and I came off the air and that's when I really delved into uh, being a program director, understanding, as you indicated, Jarrell, um, you know, budgets and all of that, and then managing uh, on-air personalities. But I'm grateful that I did get the opportunity to be on the air. Uh, so when a personality would bring up an issue, I was able to relate. But um, so I would say that was in 1988. That was the last time I turned on the mic to be an on-air personality. And I joke with, with my uh, on-air people, um, I would say, you know, if every DJ didn't show up, I still would not go on the air because I'm just not good at it. Right. And I was curious to know from a managerial perspective, how did you handle when the big boss at the company that owns the station say, hey, uh, our ratings are in the tank, you want to do a format flip? And then you got to break it down to the personality and say, hey, we're going to do a format flip. I'm going to clean house or we're only going to keep a small number of you. Yeah, I've gone through that. And um, one of the things that is challenging about being you know, the program director or being in management, when you have to relay uh, sad news or uh, disappointing news to people that love doing what they are doing. Um, that is not a good feeling because, you know, as I manage, I always ask myself, you know, reverse the role. How would you feel? And if, if a company says, you know what, let's take care of the personalities or the staff um, that worked so hard at doing this format, but unfortunately it didn't work. So let's come up with a good financial package or are there some people that would be able to make the transition and go into the new format. Uh, so we, we just make sure that these people are loved upon, they are respected, they are given this information and love, and they are able to express you know, what they're thinking. And so when you do it right, people have respect. When you do it wrong, they walk away bitter. Uh, they walk away saying how bad of a company or how bad of a manager or managers they are. So if you do it right, and if you give, a lot of times you don't have to give justification, but we just got to remember that these are human beings just like you and I. Mm, and how does radio 
find this place in today's media landscape where streaming, podcasting, and today's kids don't even know the concept of standing by the radio, listening for your favorite record to play maybe 15 minutes later, or be the seventh caller and win tickets to go to this show. They don't have that same emotional tie-in like generations before them with radio. You know, Jarrell, you bring up a valid point. Um, I have a son that's 22. Uh, last year, I sent him a text saying his name is Colin. I said, Colin, have you heard of KMEL? Well, for those of you that are not familiar with uh, KMEL in the Bay Area, KMEL is one of the big stations in the Bay Area, respected all throughout the uh, radio industry. And he responded to my text. He said, no. Uh, Jarrell, my family and I have been in the Bay Area now over five years. I thought he would say his response would be yes. And I'm like, maybe I didn't ask the question correctly. <laughs> I did ask the question correctly. Then he expounded. He said, no. Um, I said, his radio says, no, I, I, I get my music from Spotify. And, and I would watch him. He would get in his car and just go ahead and plug his phone in and crank up um, uh, his music. Uh, the other day I did some research and I saw that the millennials um, uh, in terms of where they retrieve their music, Spotify uh, was number one, like 47% Spotify. And it was 6,000 people that were surveyed between I think the age 18 and 36. And it listed other um, uh, sources. And then at the very bottom, 3% other. Radio was not even mentioned. Um, of course, it was mentioned in the 3%, uh, but it never even said radio. So I'm assuming radio is in that 3%. Uh, for youngsters, their world is totally different. Um, their world is what? Instant gratification. Uh, whatever they want to hear, uh, they want to hear it now. And uh, But for adults, uh, that's why you see throughout the country, uh, adult radio stations, uh, Jarrell, still doing well. Uh, why? We're more settled. Um, you know, we grew up with radio and there are personalities that uh, we love and there are personalities that we want to continue to enjoy. Uh, but to this generation, uh, as you indicated, uh, running to the radio and all of that, that doesn't turn them on. Look at this generation. What are they doing? Their heads are down. Uh, what? Uh, like this all day long. And we would love, especially for the radio people, to say, to say, boy, they are listening to radio. But no, they're looking at uh, videos, TikTok, uh, TikTok and everything else uh, that they enjoy. Um, so it's going to be um, a battle. Uh, if you looked at some of the big uh, young stations throughout the country, you would see that uh, a lot of um, them are doing poorly in terms of the overall rating, which we call six plus. Now, if you delved into 18 to 34, 18 to 49, some of them are doing well. But for the most part, it is a challenge for younger uh, ended radio stations. Right. And how does radio get back to that? that spice of life feel where when you go to a different market, you're going to hear 
various songs depending on where you're at and where it's not just the same 10 songs in every market and personalities are able to shine and not have it be okay say this five second liner then off yeah i you know uh honestly uh i think one of the things that could um uh, I hate to say save radio, but one of the things that can give radio that injection is having great personalities uh, on the air all day, not just a great morning show. Okay, uh, the person that comes on after the midday show, be quiet. You only can talk for five seconds. Uh, the average listener, they are not thinking uh, that it's 12 noon. If they are being entertained uh, it doesn't matter what time of day it is. They just want to be entertained. So I think one of the sa uh, saving forces uh, are great personalities, um, entertaining listeners, not necessarily being funny, but just being intriguing, being compelling, being riveting in terms of uh, content and, and bringing what? Entertainment back to radio. Because we're pretty much... Um, playing music back to back, I can get that on Spotify or I can get that on Sirius uh, XM and everything else. But uh, what will make me stop and say, hmm, I just got to turn uh, WBLS on in New York because I love this personality. Uh, I'll give you an example. Um, D.L. Hughley, he's on an afternoon drive on you know, a few radio stations throughout the country. And he is doing close to morning show radio and many markets he's doing well. Uh, why? Because people are running to the radio uh, saying, boy, I can't wait to hear what D.L. Hughley has to say. Uh, and Michael Bazden, when he was hot and, and, and on fire, that's why people ran to the radio an afternoon drive to hear this guy um, entertaining them. Right. It's appointment listening because if you think about the days before automation, that every station mm -hmm. had a live body and the overnight mm -hmm. job was just as good as who was in morning, afternoon, midday or nights. And it was where you were mm -hmm. able to prove yourself, cut your teeth until you get to that bit market. Like President Obama said, there's levels to this and you got to start mm -hmm. off small work your way up. Like me, I started off doing college radio, then moved back to my hometown, did small market radio, where you learned how to do everything, cut commercials, record commercials, mm -hmm. run a local high school football game or two, and just really get your craft seasoned. By the time you get mm -hmm. your opportunity, you were ready. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. No, I mean, uh, you, you're right. Uh, and I, I totally, totally agree with you. I, I have another philosophy. I, I don't tell people that, hey, you got to go to uh, market number 120 and then come back and see me in a few years. I've hired people that um, came right out of college, right? I've also hired people that have never gone to a smaller market. Um, uh, I saw something in them and I'm like, come on, let, let's get this right. Let me spend some time nurturing them. Uh, getting them totally, totally acclimated to uh, being in the big league. So I, I never want to say to uh, you or anyone else that, oh, yes, everybody needs to go to a small market before they're able to perform uh, or do well in, in a major market. It's really up to the program director to help that person, especially if that person has 
the it factor. There is something about this person that I believe uh, we could work with, we could nurture them and make them very, very successful. Right. And I want to touch on this really quick because the superstar episode on Whitney Houston brought to mind of how in the mid 80s and prior to that, it was hard for Black acts to get on pop radio, MTV before Michael Jackson and the late Walter Yetnikoff called MTV and said, I'm going to pull the whole roster from MTV unless you play him. How Top 40 wasn't touching Black acts. And there's an interview that Mark Goodman did with David Bowie. And David Bowie was grilling uh, Mark Goodman on MTV's lack of Black artists. And Rick James made big noise mm -hmm. about that. Mm -hmm. And can you talk mm -hmm. about how tough it was during that time for Black acts to get on Top 40 radio? You know, um, as I'm listening to you, there was an artist back in the 80s that worked so hard at wanting to cross over. And that artist's name is Luther Vandross. The only thing, not the only thing, but one of the things that he strived for was to become a crossover act. Flipping the script, there was an artist back in the day in the 80s named Frankie Beverly, who would say to this very day, I cared less if I crossed over um, and he never crossed over, but I can guarantee you that he will be able to pack uh, a 5,000 uh, seater in a heartbeat. If you force to um, try to cross over, that could be um, a nightmare for you. Uh, I love Lionel Richie, but when he did dancing uh, on the ceiling, I'm like, oh boy, something is, is changing here. And what was changing was he or, or whoever made the suggestion, uh, well, you need a bigger audience, Lionel. You're limited. You and the Commodores are sort of limited. Uh, or Lionel, you're limiting yourself because you're targeting only African-Americans. Um, so we just got to be careful uh, forcing it. And did Lionel force it? No because he was able to, well, he was so versatile. Uh, I mean, he could do a Zoom, which was real black, um, and uh, he could do a, a dancing on the ceiling. Uh, but he ended up what? Uh, I don't wanna say he sort of said to the African-American audience, I'm gone. But when he went that far, he became a pop act. And if you went to his concert, you know, predominantly, it would be uh, whites uh, supporting him. Right, because I feel like with social media and everybody has a voice, you're bringing up the issues of cultural appropriation because if you look at the George Michael documentary that came out a couple of years ago that he was working on before he passed, um, talking about how he got airplay on not only pop, AC, but R&B, because I can remember as a kid watching Video Soul and seeing One mm -hmm. More Try on the countdown mm -hmm. or seeing him on mm -hmm. the BRE magazine, Black mm -hmm. Radio mm -hmm. Exclusive, mm -hmm. and how he won mm -hmm. the AMA for best R&B artist and best yep. R&B album for Faith. And that yep. was the first album by a white artist to go number one on the R&B charts and how everybody made a big brouhaha about it saying, hey, you know, we respect that you love and revere R&B, but this is supposed to be for us. And that's why they were saying he had named his next album, Listen Without Prejudice, because he didn't want to be pegged as just 
an R&B artist or a pop artist. I'm just an artist. I make music for everybody. And, and, you, you know, like I, I cannot, I, you know what? I cannot argue with that. I mean, did he go into the studio saying that I want this song to uh, appeal to African-Americans? Maybe he did. The point is it ended up becoming such a mass appeal uh, song that everybody loved. We could say the same thing about Stay With Me by uh, Sam Smith. Same situation where the song is so soulful that uh, the R&B uh, bass went ahead and embraced uh, Sam Smith and will still embrace Sam Smith beyond um, where he is uh, today. I want to say this, uh, it's kind of weird, but uh, I, I mentioned to Jarrell, uh, I mean, you and I could talk uh, for hours, right? <laughs> because you have a lot to share with me. People, a shout out, where can people find you if they want to know how to elevate their brand and also social media? Yeah, uh, well, first of all, Jarrell, thank you so much for having me on tonight. Um, I am doing um, a program called Elroy the Coach coaching you into a brand. And it's real simple. I am helping podcasters to evolve their brand. I am helping on-air personalities to evolve their brand. And some of the uh, classes that I offer uh, tips on becoming a great personality, um, how to uh, get out of yourself and become vulnerable, how to be the best interviewer on this planet, how to be a great storyteller, and giving you finally tips on how to brand yourself. So if you want to get involved in that, feel free to uh, shoot me an email at uh, elroy.thecoach at gmail.com. Or you can go to, to my website, which is elroythecoach.com. All right, and there you have it, ladies and gentlemen. You can catch this interview, whether it's audio or video, wherever you stream on my YouTube channel, Beyond the Album Cover. Go to facebook.com, Beyond the Album Cover. Stay updated with the podcast. Ladies and gentlemen, the one, the only, Mr. Airroy Smith. Thank you for coming on to Beyond the Album Cover, sir. Hey, good to meet you and all the best. Thank you.